Shock and awe at the UN. We will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Hurricane devastation. Haven't spoken to Royal Marines that have been out in Afghanistan. They've drawn comparisons and said it's worse. And three years of op shader. Everybody who is there supporting the effort has been just brilliant. Well, President Trump has made his first speech to the United Nations General Assembly, and he didn't hold back. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. His speech caused a stir amongst the gathered world leaders and diplomats. I'm joined today for the programme by the former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark. Hello, Professor Clark. Uh, yes. No doubt it will go down in history as Trump's, Trump's rocket man speech. Yes, it will. It was, um, it was colourful in the way that uh, these things are. Um, the underlying problem is that it's so inconsistent because he's threatening North Korea that they've got to get back into some sort of multilateral framework, while in the same speech was hinting very widely that he's going to withdraw America from the multilateral framework that stops Iranian nuclear proliferation getting worse. So he, he's doing completely opposite things in relation to North Korea and Iran. And so there's the sense of, does he really have a consistent policy or is he just saying what he feels when he feels it? And what, what's your interpretation of that? I, th I think he's trying to get tough, of course, on the North Koreans. And he's really signalling to China that his patience is exhausted and that if the Chinese don't rein in the North Koreans, if they don't really put pressure on them, then there will be something. Um, but as I say, the message that that sends is that um, he's withdrawing from multilateralism elsewhere. And the multilateralism we've got with Iran, the best thing we've had is the nuclear deal with Iran, which is putting Iranian nuclear ambitions back at least 10 years. And he is heavily hinting that in October, which is his next review of it constitutionally, he'll walk away from it. Not a good signal to send. Mm, of course, there have been theatrics before. Libya's Colonel Gaddafi fam famously tore out pages from the UN Charter as he spoke. <laughs> yes. but, but no one's threatened to wipe out a country before. No, that's right. And the, the UN General Assembly, as you say, it, it is a place for theatrics. Um, I mean, it was, was it 1961 when Mr. Khrushchev took his shoe off and banged it on the table? Um, and I happen to know he was wearing both of his own shoes when he did that. He obviously he took one in or borrowed one from somebody for the express purpose. So it is a place for theatricality. But this this is from the United States president. I mean, this is from, from the, you know, the leader of the free world, the most important single person in the world politically. And so it matters that this, the colourfulness of the description seems to be the the symbol of a deep inconsistency. I mean, nobody nobody can get a handle on what on earth President Trump's policy really is towards mm. most issues. And perhaps someone who needs to get a handle on it is Kim Jong-un, because um, as the UN Secretary General said, fiery talk can lead to fatal misunderstandings. How, how dangerous is, is this kind of talk? It's getting worse because uh, Kim Jong-un 
has has set his face as a an anti-American leader, just the way that Saddam Hussein did and the way uh, Mladic did. They all tried to take on the United States on the assumption that somehow the U.S. won't act. And the danger for the, is that Kim Jong-un lives in his own little bubble. Uh, we don't believe he's particularly well informed about the rest of the world. And so um, compared to a year ago, the dangers of conflict in East Asia by sheer miscalculation are considerably higher than they were. Well, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, has also given a speech at the General Assembly. Let's hear a bit about, of that. The UN and its agencies must win our trust by proving to us and the people we represent that they can deliver. And that is why we will remain generous in our funding, but set aside 30% to be paid only to those parts of the UN that achieve sufficient results. Um, Michael, there does seem to be a dissatisfaction with the UN at the moment. What is the problem exactly? Yes, I mean, the the UN is is like this. I mean, I've been involved in UN committees, and it really does test your faith in the organisation when you go in and out of the building and, uh, you know, you see the way that the thing is. Because there are 193 members of the United Nations now, so everybody has a staff there, every country has to have a role in the committee somewhere. And there's a a great sense of entitlement, both as individuals and as organisations. And so there is a sense in which the, you know, the UN expects to receive money from everybody. It's, it's not a particularly rich organisation compared to private companies, but it, it expects to get money in and it does waste an awful lot of it. It does a great deal of good. But also there are certain things in the UN which are just laughable. The idea that the, the Saudis are part of the Human Rights Commission is, mm. is completely laughable. And it brings the whole organisation into disrepute. Now, when the UN is able to appear to do things uh, towards peacekeeping, when the Security Council looks effective, people don't worry about all the other inefficiencies. But when the Security Council seems to be deadlocked, as it has been now increasingly the last four or five years, all the other things that are a bit wasteful at the UN actually are, uh, they come to the fore. How can it be reformed? Well, the UN has looked at reform three or four times in the last 20 years. And every time we say, if it doesn't reform itself this time, it's finished. And um, it never does really reform itself. A lot of it depends on the Secretary General, Mr. Gutierrez, I think would be a very good one. Uh, Kofi Annan was a very, very well-respected Secretary General, but he wasn't really a manager of a big organisation. Ban Ki-moon was frankly a bit disappointing. I think he was a a standard bureaucrat who just sort of sailed over the top of a lot of things, although he himself was pretty good. And I think Gutierrez, um, I think, will be a reforming Secretary General. So they've got to reduce the size of the staff, they've got to spend the money better, and they've got to put the money out into the field. Too much money circulates at the headquarters and not enough, as it were, down at the grassroots. And there's this, this incredible dichotomy in the UN between people who work in the field are very good and some of them extremely brave and the UN headquarters in New York or in Geneva which never really gets into the field. It's Mm. it's interesting that the organisation is almost in two halves and that's probably got to stop. Now the UK, Netherlands and France have created the multinational Caribbean coordination cell in response to hurricanes Irma and Maria. Maria is now heading towards the Dominican Republic and the British territory of Turks and Caicos. That's where RFA Mounts Bay may be able to offer further relief. Thanks to its Wildcat helicopter, aid has already been delivered to remote locations after Hurricane Irma. Forces news reporter Rebecca Ricks has been flying with the crew of 216 flight. Boats and docks destroyed, houses flattened and roofs blown off. From the air, it's clear to see the devastation Hurricane Irma has caused. 216 flights as RFA Mounts Bay's Wildcats helicopter. It's been integral to the relief mission here in the Caribbean. 
Their first task was to survey the damage Hurricane Irma caused in Anguilla and the British Virgin Islands. Lieutenant Lee Coltart is the flight observer. It's something that I've never seen, never seen before. First time being in an area like this. Um, having spoke to Royal Marines that have been out in Afghanistan, they've drawn comparisons and said it's worse. Um, there's a lot of debris, broken glass uh, around in the area, so the worry was another hurricane coming through, first with Jose and now with Maria. There's a lot of uh, loose objects that can cause damage to not only buildings, but a lot of people that are still in the area. It's the first time a wildcat is deployed to the Caribbean and it's outperforming expectations. Pilot of the flight is Lieutenant Oli Bundok. The Wildcat has been incredible. The serviceability, uh, we haven't dropped one sortie yet due to serviceability. Um, the engineers have been incredible with it. Trying to figure out how long we were before. As soon as Hurricane Maria passes, the Wildcats will be deployed, taking vital water and medical supplies ashore. That was Rebecca Ricks reporting from the Caribbean. Professor Michael Clark is with us for the programme today. Um, we've had this announcement of this multinational Caribbean coordination cell, but it's taken a while to get to this point, hasn't it? Yes, I think people didn't anticipate the ferocity or the fact that Irma would be followed by Maria. Um, and the problem with hurricanes, it's, it's obviously the damage they do during the hours that they pass through, and they do pass through in a few hours. I mean, I was in uh, Puerto Rico in, uh, during Hurricane George in 1999, and that was no fun. Um, but, but the issue is, is not once they've passed through it's it's what happens three and six months later because mm. it can be a year before the street lighting is back on uh, i mean roads can be closed for months and months in countries like this and in that light do you think the timing of the british military response is about right well, the, what they can do is useful. I think they should have they should have been a bit more prepositioned. I think the the Dutch and the French thought it through better than we did. I mean, we were a good forty eight hours late, as it were, in thinking about what happened, what needed to happen. I think now that the uh, response is working, that's fine. But we need to think not so much what the military can do, but what Britain can do for its overseas dependencies. These are the people who depend on us. They're part of our system, and we should be aware that you know the effect of hurricanes lasts for a long time, even when all the rubble is cleared up and all the mess has got rid of it's getting services back and in the case of the Caribbean the BVI which I know very well the British Virgin Islands depends 90% on tourism and so the tourists won't be back this season it's a great sailing area there'll be no sailing going on in the peak season which is January to April April May for them they'll have lost a whole season so a lot of people will be quite badly off in the BVI until at least the next season next October November Still to come, three years of Opshader, but what goes on at Aludade? And should Britain bring back national service? Is the Ministry of Defence considering reducing the size of the Royal Marines? Well, according to the Times, the MOD could be looking at cutting the Corps by a thousand. Here's someone who's not happy about that. My name is Julian Thompson. I was a Royal Marine Major General and I commanded the 3rd Commander Brigade Royal Marines during the Falklands campaign. And I wrote to the Times today because I was very concerned about reports that there was an idea in the MOD, and I understand it's only an idea at the moment, that to save money, the Royal Marines would be cut by a thousand people. And this, to my mind, sends a very unfortunate and bad message to anyone who might wish us ill, such as Mr. Putin and others, because as well as the cuts, there is a plan to cancel the training in America and Norway this year with our NATO allies, and then also mentioned in the possibility is scrapping an assault ship, i.e. an amphibious ship, 
And the message this sends is a, quote, we are not interested, unquote, message to people who might wish to do us harm. And it actually reminds me all too well of a similar message transmitted by a Tory government in 1982, in this case, planned and announced reductions in the Royal Navy, including carriers and amphibious ships, persuaded the then Argentine junta that the UK was no longer interested in defending the Falkland Islands against an invasion by what was then a fascist regime. And putting that right in the Falklands campaign cost a lot of lives, a lot of blood, a lot of ships, a lot of men in the biggest air-sea battles since the Second World War. And what our politicians have to understand is defense is dictated by your enemy. What you need to defend you is dictated by your enemy, not by economics. And furthermore, cuts to the Royal Marines mean that this is a a direct uh, problem for UK Special Forces because UK Special Forces, about 45 to 50% of all UK Special Forces, not just the SBS, consist of Royal Marines. You cut the Royal Marines, that means less people to go into Special Forces. And the emphasis put on Special Forces operations these days by our politicians demonstrates how bad that would be. That was Major General Julian Thompson. Well, let's talk to Defence Editor at The Times, Deborah Haynes, who wrote that story. Hi, Deborah. Good to speak to you today. So possibly a thousand Royal Marines being cut, an awful lot. Um, It is an idea, but how good are your sources? Um, Well, my sources are are very good, otherwise I wouldn't have reported it. Um, I mean, it's basically part of um, the deliberations that are going on at the moment um, it, uh, as a part of this capability review that's taking place, um, being run by the Cabinet Office. Um, and for defence, it means that all the different parts of the military um, and wider defence are having to look at their capabilities and sort of set out their prioritisation. Like, you know, obviously everybody knows that, um, that money is short. And while the government's trying to portray this as a capability review shaped by emerging threats, the, 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 the reality is painfully obvious that its, um, its real agenda is to make the overheated equipment programme back in balance. Mm. OK, Deborah, so when you put those kind of ideas to the MOD, what do they say to you? Oh, they come back with kind of sort of like um, uh, uh, sort of formulaic lines about how they're, you know, they're going through the process of conducting a review, which is fair enough, because, I mean, like, like I said in my article, no decisions have been taken yet. Um, we're talking about um, options that are being looked at. Um, but the very fact that the situation is so tight for the Navy that they're, they're even considering um, cutting such an important asset kind of gives you a sense of the pain that people are, are feeling, despite the um, the language of the Defence Secretary, who is always quick to remind everybody about this um, growing defence budget, rather than addressing the fact that even while the defence budget, in terms of its size, mm. is protected, it's not enough to fund um, uh, the, 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 the equipment programme. Um, and also, even though he talks about um, it, it being a sort of 0.5% real-term increase, the budget, that doesn't match with defence inflation, which basically means that year on year, your money buys less. Mm. Well, joining us for the programme today is Professor Michael Clark. Do you see it this way as well, Michael Clark? 
Yes, I think Deborah's exactly right. The, the um, I mean, this is a squeeze all round, and this is a sort of an internal squeeze in the navy because you know they've got uh, six and a half thousand marines, so cutting a thousand out of that is quite a high figure. It's cutting quite a big swathe, <clears throat> and although that means, as Julian Thompson said, it means that the special forces will have fewer people to draw on at a time when special forces are more needed than ever. The fact is that the navy is short of trained sailors with their frigate program, with the uh, the Type 26s coming on stream and. And the two, remember, two aircraft carriers, for a long time they thought they were only going to have one. We thought we were going to mothball the second one or even sell it. So actually manning the surface Navy is now such a problem that the, the, what the Navy are worried about is headcount. And they've been told by the Chief of Defence Staff that they've all got to find savings. And so the Navy is simply saying, well, how many heads can we fund? And it may well be we've just got to cut the Marines in order to make sure mm. that we've got enough sailors for the ships. Deborah, uh, morale is lower in the Royal Marines. According to this year's Armed Forces Continuous Attitudes Survey, there was a 15% increase in the number of Marines who said morale was low compared to last year. Why is this exactly, do you think? Well, I mean, obviously I can't speak for them. Um, all I can speak to is the reality that they're experiencing. And, um, I mean, as well as this consideration about a cut in their size, we also we already have the decision that they're being trimmed by 200 and having the, the sort of commando structures changed slightly, and that's to free up um, manpower space to hire more sailors. Um, and also they're having training, like really key training, so um, cut. So, for example, that you know, about 1,000 uh, Royal Marines should be in California right now, training alongside the U.S. and Dutch Marines. That's been canned. Um, and also cold weather, key cold weather training in Norway um, has also been um, cut back. And I was chatting to a Norwegian officer at the DSEI exhibition last week, and he said that these things really matter um, uh, to, to Britain's allies. So Norway's looking at Britain and wondering what is going on. All right, Deborah Haynes, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much for your time today. That was Deborah Haynes, Defence Editor from The Times. Now, it's three years since the start of Operation Shader, Britain's contribution to the bombing campaign against Islamic State fighters. Our reporter Simon Newton has been to the Aludaid Air Base in the Gulf state of Qatar, which is the control centre for the air war. Good to speak to you today, Simon. This is quite a secretive place. What's there and how much did you get to see? Well, it's a vast uh, area. It's uh, one of the largest air, um, air bases in the whole of the Middle East. It's uh, as 10,000 US military personnel there, um, one of the longest runways in the whole of the Middle East. Uh, and at its core is um, is the CAOC, as they call it, the Combined Air Operations Center, which the Americans refer to as sort of ground zero for the, for the air war. This is a sort of vast secret building. There's 700 people inside there, huge screen showing... Uh, all of the air movements across uh, across the theatre uh, with live feeds from from obviously all the many drones that are over Iraq and uh, and Syria. Uh, also, there it, it, almost the camp inside a camp is a hundred British uh, military, mainly RAF. Uh, their speciality really is targeting. They seem to have that as their main role within the CAOC. Um, I spoke there to the air component commander, um, who is Air Commodore Johnny Stringer. He's an ex-Typhoon pilot, and he was really full of praise for the job his men and women are doing. The UK contribution and the Royal Air Force contribution has not only been vital over that three years, starting with humanitarian aid drops over, over Mount Sinjar and rapidly turning uh, into challenging kinetic operations for tornado and then typhoon, our ISR forces who are in from the outset. I mean, it, it, is, it has seen the Royal Air Force operate at a tempo 
uh, a scale and a collective weight and rate of effort that we've probably not seen over that three-year period since 1945. And throughout that time, our crews in the air, our ground crews, our intelligence staff, our imagery analysts, everybody who is there supporting the effort has been just brilliant. And Simon, what did he have to say about the fight against IS? Well, as you'd expect, perhaps he is very positive about the uh, the air campaign. He was describing um, uh, Islamic State as an evil entity, um, particularly praising the Iraqi forces on the ground for their work uh, around Mosul. He was saying that about 60 to 65 percent of Raqqa, Raqqa has so far been uh, liberated. Uh, Talafai said has fallen in, in just a matter of days. I asked him really about how this is going to progress uh, into the future, into next year. This is what he told me. Daesh will mutate into something else. It, it, it is in the nature of that and we need to be honest about it. But equally, we're already on the front foot and anticipating what that looks like and making sure that we keep the coalition and the UK capabilities in the air environment, plus other ones, that we'll need to deal with that uh, in Iraq and in Syria. But in terms of Daesh's will to fight, their capability, any sense that they were uh, somehow uh, going to be here for uh, for decades. Well, I think they've been sadly disabused of that idea. Uh, Simon, the MOD has released details, uh, new statistics about Opshader today. What do they say? Well, first we should say they haven't been released by the MOD as such. They've been sought by the Press Association uh, under a Freedom of Information request. Uh, what they're saying really is uh, they're giving some statistics about the numbers of Islamic State fighters who've been killed by the Royal Air Force in, in these airstrikes. The figures they're giving are just over 2,600 in Iraq, around 410 in Syria since uh, Operation started back in 2015. Now, we've seen these spikes in numbers through the summer. Uh, in Iraq, we saw the numbers rise uh, during the latter stages of the battle for Mosul when the RAF was particularly involved in that fight. And more recently, we've seen a big uplift in tempo, uh, particularly by the tornadoes and the typhoons. If you look at the, the government uh, list of the missions they've gone on, you can see how often they've been hitting Raqqa in the last few months. It's been a relentless uh, missions for, for those aircraft. Um, so in terms of civilian casualties, uh, that has also been brought up again today. The MOD is still saying there's no credible evidence that uh, RF aircraft have caused any casualties. However, and Johnny Stringer was one of the people who conceded this, that they're not saying that evidence won't come to light in the future that might change that position. Mm. Of course, that is at odds with what uh, groups like Air Wars, for instance, uh, uh, say about um, the numbers of, of civilian casualties who died. They, for instance, say it's the statistical impossibility that the RAF hasn't killed anybody. Their figure, they say, is much closer to around 4,000 for the overall coalition numbers of deaths. All right, Simon Newton, thank you. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, drone pilots who've taken part in Operation Shader could be awarded military medals. How's that going down? Um, controversially, I think, because um, on the one hand, of course, I mean, drone pilots are becoming a bigger part of the force and drone warfare is, is getting more strategically important. So the MOD wants to recognise that and also emphasise the fact that these people are pilots. But unlike um, pilots in aircraft over the target, as it were, it's much more of a, of a sort of a, a visible team effort running operations as, from, from, as drones from the ground. 
and uh, I think the idea of of um, as it were making one group of the ground crews mm-hmm. um, as it were uh, honoring them in, in this way is going to be controversial it, it, it's very it much emphas- work in pro- progress it is though, it, it? it emphasizes how revolutionary the whole robotics thing is you know drones are the tip of a big technological iceberg and it's going to change quite a lot of our ways of having to think about military campaigns in the future Sweden is about to bring back conscription after it was suspended seven years ago. National service in the UK ended in 1960, but is there an argument for bringing it back? Well, Elizabeth Braw, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, has been looking at the benefits and joins us now. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. So what are the benefits? Well, there are benefits uh, to the armed forces, obviously, (laughs) and military benefits. uh, And uh, in the case of Sweden, these uh, benefits are that that there would be a stable supply of soldiers because uh, the armed forces have had trouble recruiting uh, soldiers to the fully professional armed forces, which were introduced in uh, 2010. the economy is just going too well, and uh, the armed forces uh, apparently don't pay enough, so they've had a recruitment problem. Now conscription is coming back. Uh, but I would argue that there is also uh, there are wider benefits to society at large. Uh, uh, the armed forces train young men, and in this case women, because it will be a gender-neutral uh, draft, and uh, they then learn uh, leadership skills, for example, that you can't learn anywhere else under such... Uh, uh, difficult conditions uh, at that age. Professor Michael Clark has joined us for the programme today. Uh, Michael Clark, Elizabeth mentioned there that uh, Sweden's bringing in conscription because they've got problems recruiting people for mm. the paid jobs, uh, the full-time jobs. Um, could that work in the UK given our recruitment problems? I don't think it's it's uh, easy to to transfer that context. I mean, we talk about about conscription in Sweden, Finland, Israel. These are countries that you know face a different sort of strategic problem to us. And the forces absolutely don't want conscription uh, because they know that it creates as much trouble as it as it solves. Uh, because some people really don't want to be there. Uh, and our own experience of conscription is that it worked extremely well as a personal character builder for some people, but not for others. And by and large, I mean the sort of operations that we think about these days from a military point of view require highly trained specialists not 24 month people um, who are just sort of marking time while they do their bit Mm. Um, so some of them of course go on to join the regulars they love it and it makes them but that's not universally the case and and so conscription may solve a lot of social problems in society but what the forces would say is it's not our job to solve society's social problems our job is to defend society and to do that we need very high highly specialised people who we can really believe in will be with us for several years, not 24 months. Elizabeth Brewer, how does conscription work in different countries? Because they have different kind of sign-up periods, don't they? Different setups. Exactly. And uh, to to respond to what uh, Michael Clark just said, so in Sweden it will be selective conscription. Um, up to 4,000 young men and women will be chosen. And that's... Um, a minuscule percentage, less less than 5% of the annual class of young uh, men and women, uh, 18-year-olds. And so what it means is that the armed forces get to choose the, the best and the brightest who uh, may otherwise not have signed up for the armed forces. And so even if they don't go on to a military career, they will remain as reservists. And that's a fantastic resource to have. And, and as I mentioned, and, and what's specific or typically uh, and importantly, the case in Israel, they will learn skills that will benefit uh, the national economy. So if you look at the Israel uh, Israeli high-tech economy, it's uh, 
powered largely by former elite unit soldiers. All right, Elizabeth Braw, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you for your time today. Uh, Michael Clark, um, an important announcement this week about our current Chief of Defence Staff and his next mm. job. Yes, he's going to chair the uh, NATO Military Committee. And um, it's interesting that he um, he's exactly the right person to do it. Most senior officers really wouldn't want that job. Um, but Why not? But he likes it. Well, it's a, it's a tough job. It's a very it's a job working with all of our allies. It's quite bureaucratic. And it's, it's a job that a lot of people just can't do. But Stu Peach is somebody who's got a great NATO record. He spends a lot of time, or has spent a lot of time in his career working with our allies and actually keeping them warm. And he speaks German. He's he's a very uh, engaging sort of personality. I think he will do that very well. And my understanding is he actually wants to do the job, mm. whereas and a lot of officers really wouldn't want it. And the first British person to do it in 25 years. That's right. I think Dick Vincent was the last one. Uh, Richard Vincent uh, was the, the last uh, chairman that we had. And so at the moment, we'll have James Everard as D. Sacker, Deputy Supreme Commander, and then um, Air Marshal Stu Peach, sorry, sorry, Air Chief Marshal Stu Peach, as chairman of the military committee. And, of course, the danger is that with Brexit, we may lose that de Sacker role. We may lose one of those two roles, so it would be good to have somebody in the military committee. You think committee. so? You think really? We, well, when James Everard finishes, it's not automatic that mm. a, a British officer will then replace him. That's mm. up for grabs, but that's a couple of years away. So, yeah. so Michael, who will replace the chief of defence staff? Ah, uh-huh. the $64,000 question. The, 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 the hot money is on the vice chief, um, Gordon Messenger. Um, and if so, that'd be very interesting because he is a Marine and I can't remember the last time a Marine was uh, Chief Morale of Staff. Morale boost for the Marines when it's needed. Just when it's needed. Mm. Michael Clark, good to speak to you today. Thank you very much for your time. That is all we have time for this week. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. We'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.